All right. I thought I was going to be down with the people, but then Jacob put me up here, so I don't know what I'm going to do up here. My name is Nate Wagner. Welcome. Um, it's really good to have you all here with us this Sunday. If you're visiting, um, got family in town, um, hanging out with good friends and family for um, Father's Day, I'm really glad you're here. And it's our joy to invite you into our service. Um, so we are in the middle of a um, sermon series that is going through Philippians. And the whole idea of this sermon series is basically we want to locate our story, our individual stories, in the story of Jesus Christ so that we can have joy um, as a result of that. And so um, we are kind of dropping right in the middle of this today. And um, I hope that you all will um, feel encouraged and understand what it means to have joy in this life um, through Christ. My name's Nate Wagner. I am one of the pastors here. I'm pastor of family and communities. Um, and so I don't typically preach, but I really enjoy it when I do. And so um, I hope that you all will be encouraged by this text, just like I was throughout the week as I was preparing. Um, I'm going to warm us up with a little bit of a story. It's a really short, cheesy story, but I think it'll give us some material to consider. Um, it's a story about two old monks and one younger monk who um, was in charge of serving the two older monks. And one of the things that this younger monk had to do for the older monk, or for the older monks, was to wake them up in the middle of the night to give them medicine um, to help them. And so he goes into the room of the first monk, and he wakes him up, and it's the middle of the night, and the monk is really cranky. And he says, why are you doing this? Why are you waking me up? Leave me alone. You're bothering me. And so he gives him his medicine and walks out. And so as a way of preparing for the second monk, he's like, well, I'm going to preempt that. And so he w knocks on the door of the second monk, and he walks into the room and wakes the second monk up. And he says, I'm so sorry. I don't want to bother you, but I just need to give you this medicine so that you don't die. And the second monk says, no, 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 forgive me, for it is not I who am bothered, but you. Thank you so much for serving me. And the monk walked out of that room, and he realized something. He realized that that very moment, that very day, and all the rest of the days of his life, he was going to choose which monk he was going to become, the first monk or the second monk. And so here's a question. Who here wants to be the first monk? Who here wants to be the cranky monk who is a burden who is um, really cantankerous and is difficult to serve um, and pushes people away through his selfishness. Well, that monk probably didn't want to become himself either, right? He didn't choose to become that. It happened because there was nothing that ever interrupted his pursuit of self-centered living. And so the the text that we have today is going to push this front and center. It's going to push the, um, the ramifications of pride and selfishness into our vision, and then it gives us a choice. And so um, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that um, we can receive this, because as I was reading this, there's something that I think we really need to hear in this text. And it starts with an acknowledgement that we are proud and that we're selfish. And if you think that you're not, that's a problem. 
And you're not going to be able to receive anything from this text. And you'll continue on that path without being interrupted. And so this is a, frankly, this is a really easy text to understand, which makes it that much more difficult to obey and to put into practice. Um, but let's just, let's just read it and let's go there and see what God has for us this morning. And so if you have a Bible, please open it. You can flip to your phone. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Um, You have given us so much. You've given us so much more than we deserve. You've given us all of the good gifts that we receive, whether we acknowledge that they come from you or not. Every good gift comes directly from you. And yet, God, we become consumed with our own needs. We act as if you are not there. Our hearts become obsessed with what we don't have, even though we've been given everything by you. Lord, you are a generous and kind Father who does not withhold good gifts. You give them abundantly. So I ask that you would help us believe that. Help us to embrace what you have shown us here this morning. Help us to remember the grace that you shower on us. And Lord, please humble us with that. And turn us into people who are consumed with loving each other. And who won't sleep until their brothers and sisters in Christ are cared for. And God, please banish selfishness from our hearts. We pray all of this, and we need your help to do it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first word of chapter 2 is so, which connects us right back to where we were last week. Um, and that is that Paul was urging the, the Philippians to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And so remember, the gospel is the good news that Jesus was sent um, from heaven. The Son of God came down, became man, died for us, was raised, and he exchanges his righteousness for our sinfulness, and he puts our sins to death on the cross. And we receive his righteousness. So when we stand before the Father... We are declared righteous, just as Christ is righteous. And so Paul is wanting them to live in response to that, live lives in a way that would be worthy of that wonderful and precious gift that they have been giving. And so in, in, this, um, in this portion of Scripture, we see him starting a very kind of brutal logic train 
which goes, if, then, by. If you have any encouragement, then complete my joy by being of the same mind and being humble. And so if we have experienced grace, we need to be humbly unified as a church. And so I know that we have a lot of people visiting today, and so you're kind of coming into a family meeting where we're talking about our need to be one as a family. And if you belong to a church somewhere else, this is your call as well. This is your call to return to your church and to fight for this kind of unity and to be humbly unified to the church you belong to. And so I hope that we can do that. So in verse 1, we get this wonderful picture of what it means to and what it looks like to experience grace. So in that very first verse, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And I'll tell you, that question, when you know who Paul thinks and believes Jesus to be, that question almost sounds blasphemous. It's so sarcastic that you're like, Paul, can't you say because we have encouragement in Christ? That's what we want it to say. But that's not what he says. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, do you have any encouragement in Christ? He's asking a rhetorical question because he wants to put it to the Philippians for them to think this through. And so that's a question for us to answer this morning. Do we actually find Christ encouraging? And so like, duh, yeah, we're in church. Like we all know the right answer to this question, but think about yesterday. Were you ever in the 24 hours of Saturday encouraged because you reflected on who Christ was and what he did for you? Or were you more encouraged that your sports team won? Or were you more encouraged that you got a break from being a parent for five minutes? Or were you more, more encouraged because things are going really well at work and you just got promoted and you got to celebrate? Now, don't mishear me. I'm not telling you not to be encouraged by those things. But if you don't see them as ultimately subservient and secondary to the encouragement that we have in Christ, then that's a huge problem. And we in this country in particular can live our lives completely separated from the encouragement that we have in Christ. We don't really need it. There's too many other things that we can be encouraged by. And so we don't feel like we need to be encouraged in Christ. If you're having trouble with this, I understand that. This was probably the the hardest thing for me to read and think about this week. And I think it's because after you've been a Christian for a while, you start to live a life where grace is almost like a 401k, where it's an investment that is made and a sacrifice that you make for the future. Maybe you even see it as a sacrifice that Jesus made for your future. That's true. It's not wrong. But here's where the disconnect happens for us. We start to live lives that don't need grace right now. We don't need God's grace today. And that's just not the kind of account that Jesus has set up for you. It's not a retirement account. It's a trust. As you live this life, there are going to be waves of 
infinite resources that you have in him that will wash over you every day. So yes, Jesus did die to secure your future. And it's going to be much more um, wonderful and glorious than we can even imagine. But right now, today, you actually can be encouraged in Christ. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to how. If there's any comfort from love, whose love? It's Jesus' love. Any comfort from his love? Were you comforted by Jesus' love? Or do you go to the love of someone or something else for your comfort? When you need comfort, do you go to a substance to distract yourself or to feel good? Do you go to your best self-help book where an author skillfully reminds you of how great you are and how much value you have? You laugh. This happens. And they sell them as Christian books. <laughs> Are you comforted more from your spouse or from a parent or from a child than you are from Jesus? Do you even realize that Jesus is comforting you through those people? That it's actually Jesus working through a secondary means to comfort you? Enjoy that comfort from loved ones, but enjoy it as Christ is comforting you. If there's any comfort in love. Well, what kind of love does Jesus show us? Does he use to comfort us? In Romans 5, 8, um, Paul expresses it like this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now we're starting to get to some of the power of experiencing grace. When you know that you are a sinner and Jesus died for you while you were a sinner, that gives you power, encouragement, and comfort right now in real time. It's not something you have to wait for. It will actually give you energy to love God and to do exactly what he's called you to do. When you realize that you didn't even really want Jesus to die for you. You just wanted Jesus to die. Apart from Christ, you were in the crowd that was putting him to death. When you realize that, and then think, and Jesus knew that, and he died for you still in that place, that should comfort you. That should, that should warm your heart towards Jesus. If there's any participation in the Spirit, do you see the work of the Spirit in your life? Do you participate with the Spirit in putting sin to death, in walking in faith and by faith, in loving other Christians? And then do you receive the fellowship and the participation of other Christians who the Spirit is working through. Does that move you? Sadly, there are Christians who go to churches their whole lives, and they would have trouble answering that question. They would have trouble thinking of a time where they were actually moved because another Christian served them and loved them and sacrificed for them. 
Um, thankfully, this church, I see this happen all the time. I see people who are responding to the Spirit's work and following Christ. And it's such a beautiful thing to see. It doesn't make any sense. They don't know why they're doing it. They're just like, yeah, this, I think, is what God would have me do, so I'm going to do it. And it's like, well, that doesn't help you. That makes your life a lot worse. Why would you do that? I don't know. Paul's pushing us into these experiences of grace. If there's any affection and sympathy. So think about the deepest gut-level affection that you can have for something. So for parents, it's likely going to be your kids. Um, For people who aren't parents, it might be a spouse. It might be a really, really good friend who you've gone um, through a lot of suffering with and a lot of trials with. This is someone who you would basically do anything for. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the type of sympathy and the type of affection that is born out of trials and is tested. Do you have any of that? Have you experienced any of that? And so these are four kind of rhetorical questions that have built a lot of tension now. It says, if any, if any, if any, if any, then complete my joy. And so in order to understand the force of this, you have to understand that Paul is writing this letter from prison, potentially on his deathbed, and he's saying, hey, Philippians, my joy, my enjoyment of life is attached to your faithfulness in living out the gospel. And so this isn't a theological statement that Paul's trying to make here. It's very emotional. He is kind of using every trick in the book to leverage the Philippians into what he desires. And so he uses his own joy. Paul suffered for these people. He's in jail because he's preaching the gospel, just like he preached it to them. They are heirs of eternal life because they heard the gospel from Paul. And so when Paul, who has all of that capital with them, says, complete my joy by doing this, it's going to pull on their hearts is going to really motivate them to do what he's what he tells them. And so here is how Paul's joy would be complete. He wants them to be one. And this is the same message that Jesus was obsessed with. He wanted the church to be one. He wanted his people to be unified. He did not want them to be divided. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the type of unity that Paul's really talking about here is not just kind of um, similar opinions about things. It's not superficial. No, this kind of unity is a unity that transcends radically different opinions. And so um, we also see this at this church, right? We have people who are just a little bit left of socialist at our church, and then we have people who are um, essentially running the shadow government for the right. And so we, how are we going to get along? How are these two groups going to be unified? It seems foolish, especially with how we see our political climate nowadays. 
Well, it's because there's, they have a unity that's based on something much more important than our earthly politics. They are united by a love and a response for Jesus. And they want to see that gospel go forward. And so they can put those differences aside. They're not going to agree. We wouldn't want them to agree. But they can put those aside and work together and love each other. Just like family. So that's the type of unity that Paul is talking about. It's, it's a shared and unbalanced priority. So here's what I mean by that. It's not unbalanced in that um, it's unstable or one minute it'll be one way and the next it'll be another. No, what I mean by that is that it doesn't take into account like your pursuit of a balanced life. That's very, that's very like, um, it's a buzzword right now. Everyone's kind of looking for balance in their lives. And uh, there's no balance here. This is the priority that God has given us. So everything else is underneath this. Everything else is secondary. And we need to love God and love others. It's that simple. That is our unbalanced priority that we share. And then it's also a shared worldview. And so this is where the rubber really meets the, the road. So all of this sounds nice and it's very big and abstract, um, but in a shared worldview, we're thinking about things maybe not exactly the same, but we're thinking about them in the same way. And so we are honoring God's word as the final authority for faith and life. And so we're submitting everything to God and his word. And so that's, that's the unity that Paul wants. He doesn't want um, false peace. He doesn't want um, people to not have conflict or confrontation. No, he wants people to die to themselves and to live for their brothers and sisters. And so what is the obstacle to this? Why is this so hard to do? Why does it seem like every other second there's a church that's collapsing because of internal division, not because the bad people out there are tearing it down? No, it's happening because it's coming from within. What is the obstacle to this unity? It's selfishness. And that's what Paul gets at in verses 3 and 4. That's what he knows. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so this is where we see um, how we're going to do this. How are we going to be unified? We're going to be unified by being humbled. And so this humbling um, is a... It's a mutual submission to other. And so you are submitting to someone. You're submitting your desires, your wants, to someone who is submitting their desires and their wants, all for the benefit of the other person. But nothing? We can't do anything for ourselves? This is so radical. Why, why does Paul have to say that? 
this is, this is probably tearing at you guys. And if it's not, it, you don't understand it. You know the, you know the, um, the illustration that I've heard? I've, I've been to like um, compassion fatigue seminars and this kind of stuff. And the illustration that they'll always use is one that we're all familiar with. And it's when you're sitting on an airplane and the stewardesses are there and they're saying, and if you have kids, make sure to put your own oxygen mask on first before securing your child's. And that's kind of not what Paul's saying here. And here's why he's, he's not saying that. Because we are proud. <laughs> it's getting back to that. We're proud. We think that we don't have our oxygen mask secured already in Christ. And so we come up with a million different ways where we need something more before we'll serve someone else. I mean, think about it. We are living in a time, in a place, in a city where we have so much more than we need. Materially, psychologically, for entertainment, we have so much more than we need. And yet, has there ever been a society as consumed with not having enough as ours? I don't think so. We really, folks, guard your hearts as you make an excuse for not serving someone because you don't have enough. Guard your hearts. Because if you have Christ, then you have enough. So there's two kind of basic camps of people, two ways that we can, that we can ignore this. The first way is to live a life where you believe that you care more for the world than God. And so that person is going to burn themselves out by doing everything, and it looks like they're doing it for other people, but really they're doing it because they need to be the Savior, because they need to be affirmed that they are helping. So you're living a life where you believe that you care more about the world than God. The second type of person, the person that I tend to be, that I think a lot of us probably tend to be, is where we live a life that doesn't need regular experience of grace. We do a great job providing for ourselves, so we don't need God's provision. We do a great job of structuring our lives and even our spiritual lives to where we have convinced ourselves that we aren't sinners who have been forgiven by Jesus. And we're like, yeah, yeah, I was, but now I'm doing pretty good. And so the gospel never comes and enters into your heart. This is, this is a trap that mature Christians fall into all the time. It's a trap that, um, that people who are raised in the church fall into all the time. They think, oh, because I'm doing all the right things... I don't need the gospel. Or the gospel is kind of something that, yeah, it's good to be reminded of, but it doesn't penetrate your heart. And it's because you still think that you can earn God's favor apart from the gospel. And so this is a hard word, but it's true, and it will help humble us. The only thing we've earned, guys, apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus the only thing we've earned is God's righteous punishment and condemnation. That's the only thing we've earned. 
everything else that we can look at our lives and say that we have is a gift. And that's including our faith. That's including every good thing we've ever done. That's just an extravagant gift that God has given us. And so here's the two areas of of life where this is going to be hardest to apply. And so I have no... um, I have no false aspirations that we're going to be humble next week, right? This is a lifetime pursuit, and it's something that we desperately need God's help with. It comes through suffering. It comes through um, shared suffering. It comes through a long, um, steady um, obedience in the same direction. Um, But here are the two areas where it's going to be hardest. Your household, so the people you live with and around— And then God's household, the people that you are connected to in the local church. This is where it's going to be hardest. And so think about your household. And we cover this in premarital, and it gets me every time. We talk about this mutual submission. And so I think it's really funny because the image in my mind is like we're opening the door for each other, and nobody will walk through the door. That's kind of the, I'm like, yeah, this won't work because then no one is. And it's just a complete defense mechanism um, when you see a marriage where the husband is serving his wife and the wife is serving her husband, it's beautiful. And it's something that we all want on a deep level. And it's what we're called to. And then in God's, in God's household, I'm going to use this example. This is an example of um, one of my first experiences at Portico, when I first came to Portico, it was in uni and Katie Doe's community group. And I was, it was like my second time at community group. I was still kind of learning what, how Portico did community groups. And we're all eating dinner um, in a circle together, and uni's like, okay, so I just got to get this out here. If you are here because you need to have one of your needs met, that's not why we're here. And it was deeply offensive. <laughs> I was like, what? I need friends, and this is why you exist, to be my friends. <laughs> what is the deal? And he, he gave me this perspective that I had never had before, um, to my own shame. But he said, your mindset in coming to your community group should be, what can I bring, not what can I take? And if everyone has that mindset, then everyone's going to be taken care of. And so it is an act of trust, but it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing when it happens. And so as you're um, going to your community group, be careful how you're going. Seriously. Are you going because you need something from them? Are you going because you think that God hasn't already given you everything that you need? Um, or are you going because you want to serve and love other people? So that mindset is what Paul wants. And the barriers to this, are again, are pride and entitlement, and we're going to spend a lifetime fighting those and tearing them down and asking for God's help to do that. Um, and then there's the other question that I think we all ask, is like, how far do we need to take this, Paul? How far? And he answers that question. This is what we're going to go through next week. I'm just going to read it for you guys and see if this kind of stops your mouth 
from asking that question as it stopped my mouth when I read it. So how far do we take this mindset? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is both the power for our humility and the example of it. So that's the bar that we are to imitate. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, it is so hard to come to you um, during these moments where we see our pride, we see our entitlement, um, because it's standing in stark contrast to your son. And so when we measure ourselves against the standard that is Jesus, all of us, we come woefully short. And so God, I ask that today that none of us would leave here without knowing deeply that we need Jesus to do this. God, I also ask that we would be encouraged because we are forgiven sinners and that you have seen us and you have sent your son for us. And so God, I ask that, um, that you would help us all live humbly as we respond to the grace that you've given us to experience every day that we're on this earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.